This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast talking about how we take in media and spit it back out again. Today we're talking about storytelling through song. I'm Mark Linton-Meyer, and I know when to hold them, but not always when to fold them. <laughs> I'm Erica Spires, pleading with women not to take my man through song since 2003. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, but more on that later. I'm Rob Picot. I am not here to break your heart with song. I'm here to crush it to bits. (laughs) Challenge extended. (laughs) Rod, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, folks can hear me talk with Rod specifically about his storytelling songs and actual songs with written short stories. Actual literacy, not just (laughs) a verse of stuff that us songwriters get away with. Let's do some career updating stuff at the end. But as far as this topic, I, you know, I immediately thought of you, of course, because on our interview, you said that this was something that you were very attracted to immediately in just getting to know songs like the ones that actually told stories. I mean, it always fascinated me from my childhood. You know, there's such a huge range of story songs with narrative. And, you know, sometimes they take place in a particular place. And it's sort of somebody telling a story that it's sort of the narrator telling you the story. And I was always kind of fascinated as well with like these sort of pop songs that have very dark stories like Mac the Knife and things like that. You somehow wonder like how did they, how did they, <laughs> how did get they on turn radio? that in, yeah how, how did they turn that into a swing song how did they make that a dance song I mean it's a you know it's a brutal song when I was a kid I inherited this pail this little green pail of forty fives from one of my aunts I was probably only seven or eight years old you know these were songs from like four or five years before I got them you know so to me you know how that is when you're a kid time is such a relative thing, you know, and it changes your perception of time. So so the, to me, they were old songs. They were really old. And a few great story songs were in there, you know, like Long Black Veil, I think was in there and uh, Mac the Knife. And, you know, I loved pop music, but I do remember, I remember having a moment listening to a pop song. I can't, I can't remember whose song it is. Don't pull your love out on me, baby. Take my heart, my soul, maybe I'll just lay me down. Cry for a hundred years. And the visual of that, maybe I'll lay me down and cry for a hundred years. I remember that specific line and having this sort of emotional response to it and thinking, even as a kid, I was, I was pretty astute in parsing out pop culture. And I thought, wow, like that song has a visual in it and has a, a little piece of a story. This guy is telling his story and it's really moving. You know, it's really emotional. Of course, I was only eight years old. So I, you have to take that into account. But. The song, uh, Don't Pull Your Love by Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds, a band name seemingly designed so you will forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and we all did. <laughs> But yeah, that's some dark stuff, Long Black Veil. I can see how, especially songs that involve murder and things, are as a kid. That's a huge segment. If you start thinking about story songs, you start thinking about narrative, that is an enormous chunk of the songs that make up that group of songs are murder ballads, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Knoxville Girl and Mac the Knife and... Even Hurricane by Bob Dylan, it's a crime story, essentially. I mean, he's trying to right a wrong there. But a lot of those stories, a lot of the most compelling ones to me have a dark side to them. 
it's interesting how sometimes, you know, like Long Black Veil, the music and the performance mirrors, and there's a lot of different versions of it, but I specifically think of the Johnny Cash version. It mirrors the lyric and it sounds like the lyric, if you know what I mean. So it's in a setting that makes sense. But then you have these other ones, like I said before, like Mac the Knife, like that makes no sense at all. The way he swings that and the way the band just, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. There's a huge range there. I was asking my wife about songs, and she mentioned Coward of the County by Kenny Rogers. And I kind of knew that song, but didn't really. And I was listening, oh, this is a nice little song. And about a third of the way in, there's a gang rape. And I'm like, oh my God, what is this? And I stopped listening. I'm like, I, this is probably something that I wouldn't say couldn't be made now, but I don't think a man could or should write this song in today's era. It's just the tone of it seemed really wrong. But man, I'll tell you, you can really listen to a lot of songs and have no idea what's going on in them if you're the sort of person who doesn't process them that way. This whole idea of story songs, you have to engage them at a certain level to not just be just humming along and kind of singing without thinking about the words. And as Erica and Mark will tell you, among the three of us, there are two musicians. So I don't engage music at all that deep a level and getting ready for this podcast. When Mark said Bohemian Rhapsody was a story song, I'm like, it's listed on things as a story song. That's one of the reasons why I want to. So I'm really waiting for you to, to enlighten me on that one, Mark, because I, I didn't want to step on your toes on that one. But truly, this is something that I think there does require a bit of willing participation by the consumer to process the narrative and not just go along with the music as sort of a background sound. I think it's also difficult to tell sometimes what's the difference in a story song and then just kind of a character study, right? Some people might think a story song could be anything that has a narrative, but that's so many songs. Like, you know, like you were saying, Rod, I think one of the first times I was probably aware of a story song outside of Mac the Knife, which I, I also grew up with, my parents would always play that, was the leader of the pack. I'd completely forgotten about it until you were just talking about older songs. Like that song was so dramatic as a kid. I remember as a seven-year-old little girl listening to that, just being devastated for this fake story of this guy and this guy and girl who couldn't be together and then he died. And that one is hyper dramatic, right? It's not just sung. There's full dialogue sections. There are motorcycle sounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They actually right. Yeah. <laughs> actually, it's manipulation in a way, isn't it? It's a manipulation of sort of that youthful understanding of how you perceive love and dedication to the person that you love. It's a, there's a kind of manipulation going on there that makes it sort of more pop music than really a story song. But it is a story. There's a complete narrative. Yeah, there's a whole story there. Do you think there's an element of, is there an element of story songs being more compelling to you when you're a child or when you're a teen rather than when you're an adult? Or is it a different type of story song that ends up getting you as you get older? I think the latter, as you become more sophisticated in your, in your listening and you start pulling things apart, especially if you're, if you're a musician and you start to unravel songs in a different kind of way, you start to analyze songs in a different kind of way. And when you're a kid, you're just taking it in. I love the leader of the pack too, you know, and I probably would not listen to it today, no, today yeah. <laughs> or maybe, maybe for nostalgia's sake, but. Yeah, I think you become more sophisticated and you require a little bit more than just that kind of pop manipulation. Well, and also as someone who writes from this perspective yourself, and, you know, Brian is a short story writer who yet claims to be deaf to, be, to music. So I wanted to get these different takes on this of, you know, when we talked, you were very definite about 
some musicians, they just want to play music. And so they write songs because they want something to sing. And some people are just writers. Like, I have ideas I need to put out there. And so I will use songs and, fine, I'll sing them because nobody else is going to sing them. (laughs) Like, that, those are two fundamentally different approaches. But then as a consumer, like, the difference between, I mean, unless you're Bob Dylan or something and purposefully... Like, I am about the lyrics. I'm presenting myself as somebody who's about the lyrics. And so if you're a fan of mine, you're going to listen to all the lyrics and take it as, like, what message am I trying to put across? Whereas most of the examples that we're coming up with are sort of, it's not so clear. You know, whether it's a one-off, just a pop song on the radio, you don't necessarily identify, oh, this is Ernest Hemingway who's talking to me. You know, (laughs) this is someone you expect to be a good storyteller. But yet, of course, we're attracted to narrative elements. There's something that's actually memorable, you know, along with just a mantra that could repeat over and over, like, like many pop songs just have a chorus that it doesn't even matter what it means. So Bohemian Rhapsody is one I picked because it was on these lists of story songs. I think I could have equally well picked Stairway to Heaven. But I think in both those cases, like the artists, at least at some point, have said, these are meaningless. You people who are just the fact that I'm using a lot of images in here, it doesn't amount to a story. It just looks like a story because it's kind of long. I know what you're saying. There are elements of story, of narrative in Bohemian Rhapsody. And yet, if you really unpack it, it actually takes place in one moment, which is interesting because there are different kinds of ways to, to do that. You know, you can say that is a story song. I mean, he's telling you a story. There is a story revealed there about where he is in his, in his life and what's happened. And, and yet it really actually takes place just in one moment. He's in the moment of they're not, <laughs> not that specific. He's in a courtroom or wherever, you know, but it's in the same place. If that makes, if that makes sense, like the song doesn't travel as opposed to like Hurricane, which I printed out and poured over the lyrics where it goes immediately in, you know, the first line, pistol shots rang out in the barroom night, enter Petty Valentine from the upper hall. She sees a bartender in a pool of blood, cries out, my God, they killed them all. In four lines, he's got characters, the story is developing, he's put you in a place, like you have all that in the first four lines, which is quite amazing. Thanks for mentioning that, Rod, because that kind of brings up a question I have. I'm wondering whether the story song needs this song for the story to work. And reading lyrics gets sort of to whether that is true or isn't true. I mean, maybe the lyrics of the hurricane work as a poem in some way or the framework of a story, but without actually having the music, does it stand on its own, not as lyrics, but as an actual standalone story? And maybe that's an unfair ruler, and maybe it's not supposed to, but I'm really asking, should it or does it? What do you think, Erica? I mean, I have an opinion, but I'd like to hear what you think first. And I almost want to ask Brian, what do you think from a, <laughs> from the standpoint of a story writer, right? Like I, well, there's an, a natural response, and that's for me to ask Mark what he thinks. <laughs> I will not punt this to another person. I think the standards, <laughs> the standards are so much lower. Like for a songwriter to display any sign of intelligence at all is like a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't expect that from them. We, we expect lot, something <laughs> su- hummable and nice and like that's what you need to do. So I would be surprised. Like, yeah, the hurricane or something. Actually, so this is one I have I did not re-listen to coming up to this. It's just one that I'm, you know, familiar with. 
in retrospect, I was thinking of it more like a 60 minutes piece, but the music rather than a short story. But as you actually read that open, okay, yes, characters, there's narrative. It's not merely, but that's what I took away from it. Like, here's a social ill that needs to be addressed, an injustice. Like, so that might say more about how I process stories (laughs) rather than the presentation in that song is that I came away so strongly with not the feel of the story, not, not like I would after reading an Ernest Hemingway short story, Jack London, whatever, but with this message. And then to wind it backwards, I think it's totally unfair to try to judge a story song on its lyrics because you know as you write it that you are also relying on melody and instruments and all the things that go into creating mood and drama and the rest of it in your song. And in fact, in some ways, if it works perfectly as a story, what's the point of putting it to music in the first place? Like, Why are you having that extra element there? But I'm going to back to Erica. Hmm. All right, I'm out. That's a really good point. It's almost like this song is more like several short stories, but they all go together in an anthology. So I think it still is a story. It's just a different type of story song. And my pick for today was scenes from an Italian restaurant. And I wrestled with that for a second, too, because I was like, well, it's definitely a story song. But it also is like this one guy's observation of a couple different conversations. So I think we're talking about different types of story songs, and they're still story songs. Whereas I agree that Bohemian Rhapsody doesn't feel like a story song to me at all, because there isn't really a narrative. It's more of like, these are my feelings. Here's a small thing that happened, but it's mostly about like how I'm feeling now. Yeah, I agree with that. The only caveat I would say is if it does feel like a story song to me, but it feels like it's in one moment, which makes it a different kind of story song because it doesn't travel. It doesn't travel to a different time. You know, he's just basically telling you I did this and here I am now. And, you know, I'm admitting this and begging for mercy. And but it's all in the same place. When y'all were talking, I I I was listening, but I was kind of scanning through the lyric to Hurricane because it's a fascinating song to me. I think the answer to Brian's question is, well, if that's the art that you do, you're a songwriter, then you would put it in song. There's no reason that if you were a short story writer, which I am as well, that you couldn't expand it and put it into a short story, which is exactly what I did with the last book that I put out. That was a really interesting process. The thing about songwriting and story that makes it a bit complicated and the narrative song and the story song is that there are a lot of shackles with songwriting. There's rhyme scheme, there's rhythm, there's particularly with rhyme, it can be really tricky to make a story sound believable and you know get it to rhyme at the same time. You can get easily boxed into a corner where you just can't find the right word to push the thing along or that has the right feel for the song that you're writing. Would we also call these story songs, is this just another term, a more modern term for what a ballad used to be called? Now I know because I, you know, I I teach students, we pick them an up-tempo and a ballad. So now ballad means a slow piece of music of some sort, which is not at all what it originally was with the balladeers and bringing stories to life. Like when you brought up murder ballads, that totally made me think of this, right? There's a reason we had balladeers and it was to tell these types of stories that people could easily remember. And it wasn't necessarily about making an interesting musical element. It was about how can we put this story together in a familiar tune that everybody can learn and learn of this person or Maybe it's warning some people and it, you know, about behave this way or else, because this is what happened to this person. 
there was a point in time where those balladeers were essentially just bringing the news from village to village. And they would do it in story form for the exact reason that you said, because you could remember it. You know, if something rhymes, it's much more memorable than that sort of game of, what do they call it, Chinese whispers, you know, where you sort of, kids used to do that in the 70s. I don't know if that's politically correct to say that, but. Yeah, I've never heard that. I think that <laughs> the, was not PC when I was a kid. The God, telephone right? game is what we the call it. telephone game. Yes. <laughs> I'm old. Chinese whispers. <laughs> I have heard it called that also, yeah. I'm not sure where that term came from. I think it's from the idea of, we say it's all Greek to me, but the Greeks say it's all Chinese to me, and there's, there's always that language that every language has that they refer to some other language as being the impenetrable one, so the words become meaningless. Yeah, it's it's not a language they could understand at all, so it must be... Right, so it changes, you know, you whisper the, the sentence or the story to the next person, and the next kid whispers it, and it, it slowly changes, and it gets down to, the, you know, after 30 kids, it's a completely different thing. But with a ballad, you know, with a traveling balladeer bringing the news and singing it in song form, it's so just exactly what you said, Erica. It's so much more memorable. All of us can sing, you know, lines from songs that we don't even like. Oh, well, that leads me, Rod, into the song I was going to cover today. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. Go for it. Go in. I don't think this was made clear. We all picked a, a song to become mini experts on. And as we were getting our notes ready to do this, Mark was making this list of all these story songs. And I, I told him, oh, it looks like you forgot Escape, also known as the Pina Colada song. And he said, oh, no, that was on my list of bad ones. <laughs> to which I said, well, all right, let's see about that. And that song is from 1979 by Rupert Holmes. And it's just, it's a very simple song. Rupert Holmes describes it as just this repeated vamp. And it's about a man who puts a, a reads an ad in the personals because he's bored with his quote unquote lady, which is just awesome. <laughs> so he responds. And of course, it turns out the person who put the ad in the paper when they finally meet up at a bar is his quote unquote lady. And they do like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain and all these other adventuresome things they didn't realize between each other. A little interesting notes on this. Maybe everyone knows this, but I just learned it. Rupert Holmes was, is? Is. A legit musician. Among other things, he has a Tony and looks like a uh, an Edgar Award. He wrote the book and the lyrics and the music to The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And he says in an interview that he, if he knew he was going to be known for this, he wouldn't have written it. Not that he was, he says he's happy that he had the acclaim that he got or he, he doesn't. He's happy with the fame, I suppose. But it is very, very simple. This is one of those that you can't not know the story, right? It, it is so superficial and so easy to grasp what's going on to the point where the first time he recorded it, he recorded it all the way through with his band to say, let me know if you saw the end coming. So even though he had some mistakes and he made up the original line on the spot about pina coladas because he had some other line that didn't work. So clearly there's, I don't think this was a true labor of love for him, but man, thanks for the earworm, everybody, because getting ready for this podcast, I had to, of course, listen to that song again. And <laughs> if a couple nights ago I was staring at the ceiling thinking about the election, Last night I was staring at the ceiling as Rupert Holmes was going through <laughs> through my head. Also, it's just one final tip. If you want to see a performance or a quote-unquote performance, because I think it was all lip-synced, he was on something called Burt Sugarman's Midnight Express, if that rings any bells to anybody. He was on right after the village people, taking their drink orders and bringing them pina coladas. So, man, what a, <laughs> what a trip to the late 70s, early 80s that was. Someone defend this song, because I can't. Well, it's a great piece of pop music. 
that's what pop music is supposed to do. It's supposed to get in your head and stick in there. It's a great production. You know, his vocal is way out front in that production. And uh, that's obviously intentional because he wanted you to follow that story. And, you know, they had that little, it is almost like a short story and that little twist at the end, which is sort of the classic, you know, American short story thing is to bring the reader to a place. And in this case, bring the listener to a place and then flip it and stick that knife in. And so, you know, yeah, it's a pop song and it's easily digestible and, and easily thrown out, not easily forgotten. <laughs> but it's also so set as a, at a moment in time, which is really nice that we think of it as being part of the, the late 70s to the point where it's even on Guardians of the Galaxy. It's Peter Quill. <laughs> it's on one of his tapes because when he's abducted from Earth, he has a Walkman and tapes of his mom's favorite music. So it's clearly so rooted in the past. The other thing I think is neat is that he, and you were talking, Rod, about how it's some of the challenges of telling a story when the limitations of making a song, one of the issues is having to deal with the same chorus over and over again. And that's not how you tell a story, that that repetition. And I know you mentioned in your podcast with Mark about how you can change things up in the podcast. I think you mentioned Paul Simon doing that. In that song, Escape, there's just a little twist and so the first time it, we heard the chorus, it's, do you like pina coladas? And the next time we hear it is, yes, I like pina coladas. And so being able to at least make use of the chorus to drive the story forward rather than just repeating the same lines to sort of have to tap your feet waiting for the story to progress itself. I actually had never paid attention until I read the lyrics for this podcast. You never heard the song? I've heard it. I just never really listened to the lyrics. I'd only sung the the chorus when that came up. It's kind of like that old SNL sketch when they were only singing the main parts of Billy Joel songs and stuff. <laughs> Big shot, did ya? Da, 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 right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is how most of us sing along to, you know, classic FM radio in the car. Yeah, because yeah. you can't even understand the lyrics anyway. They're so buried in reverb. What about the paper towel version? I hadn't made the connection so explicitly before we're just talking here about if it's a useful thing, as Rod was saying, for conveying information, going town to town, then of course the story song in particular is going to be especially useful in putting in commercials. You know, the Hello Mata, Hello Fada. Like, I know the Granada, the car rental version better than I know the original. That would be Alan Sherman, My Son the Nut. Yes. That was. <laughs> you guys are going deep now. <laughs> Every Jewish house had that in <laughs> had that in their uh, record player. Alan Sherman, yes. <laughs> and I see that the Pina Colada songs was at least used for bounty paper towels and Taco Bell. So, Erica, when you were talking about the different kinds of ballads, it really made me want to hear a uh, Peter Cetera, David Foster murder ballads album, or a trip picture sings the nice love songs, doing a ten minute epic of some sort. Am I forgetting something? Is there a, like a super emotional love song? But that yet is actually a five-minute, at least, story song with a continuous, we've got Pina Colada. It's all coming back to me now. Celine Dion. Okay. Wasn't that written by uh, <sighs> Meatloaf, wasn't it? Jim Steinman? Jim Steinman. That makes perfect sense. 
Oh, right. The master of, and also responsible, Jim Steinman, responsible for, what's the Meatloaf song? The Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which is very much a story song and really disturbing. And I, <laughs> as a man, I hang my head in shame at the misogyny that runs fully through that song. And I wonder about, Jim Steinman is incredibly talented, but I wonder if he got stuck in his adolescence somewhere and never got out because he's got quite a few of those. <laughs> One of my other guests on this show are on both the other podcasts, but has not been on here yet, wrote a whole blistering essay on analyzing that song and exactly how messed up. Tim Quirk, brilliant guy. I will refer folks to the his his essay on that, that you could write a whole sociological treatise. But again, when you're often, maybe it depends on your style of literary criticism, but there's a difference between writing, like, I'm so intrigued by the story that you're telling, which might be a little ambiguous. Maybe it's mm -hmm. songs let you maybe be more ambiguous than people would tolerate in a prose story. And so I want to write all these things. What does it mean? What does it actually mean? As opposed to I want to psychoanalyze you because what you have admitted is a symptom of something, not a story. It's so clear, yeah. Hey guys, let's take a moment for a sponsor break. Okay, with Thanksgiving upon us, it's time to start watching Christmas movies. But what if you go to Netflix and discover your favorite Christmas classic isn't available? Well, lace up your walking shoes, because with ExpressVPN, you can virtually travel to any Netflix library in the entire flippin' world. See, ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 countries, so just imagine all the Netflix you can explore. You want the movie Elf? It's on Australian Netflix. The Doctor Who Christmas specials? Those are on UK Netflix. And if you're up for the debate over whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie, well, go listen to Pretty Much Pop episode 24, and ExpressVPN yourself over to South Korea to watch Die Hard on Netflix. It's really that simple. Just open the app, hit one button to change your location, Refresh Netflix, and you're ready to go. And of course, it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Disney+, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch movies and shows is because it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering, and you can always stream in HD. ExpressVPN works with all your devices, too. Phones, tablets, media consoles, and smart TVs. So you can watch whatever you want, wherever you want. And right now, ExpressVPN has a great deal for pretty much pop listeners. Go to expressvpn.com slash pretty to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So go get your holiday fix, including Die Hard. For the record, it is a Christmas movie at expressvpn.com slash pretty. I discovered something interesting thinking about all this. I was listening to Bohemian Rhapsody. And I was thinking about it in terms of story song, and I was thinking sort of where it fits in pop culture. And I realized about three quarters of the way through on the second or third listen, it's really actually like a piece of musical theater. It's closer to that than it really is a rock and roll song. There are three time changes in that song and three completely different keys, three key changes. I mean, you just don't do that in pop music. You don't do that in, in rock and roll. You might do it in country where you modulate, you know, up a half step or something, but you really don't see that very much in the, maybe the Beatles, you know, there are exceptions, but I started listening to it and I just thought, this is a piece of musical theater. This belongs in a Broadway show. This is not really, even with all the guitars and everything, there are elements of it that are really theater rather than a, than a pop song. Right. And also a lot of musical theater is going that way, right? So 
I mean, all the way back, not all the way back, but I would say going to, uh, oh yeah, the who, right? Tommy. And then moving out, which was all Billy Joel songs and based around Brenda and Eddie, who were of the Bella of Brenda and Eddie in Scenes for an Italian Restaurant. And now American Idiot in the last, what, 10 years that came out. So yeah, some songwriters do lend themselves a bit better to that narrative form. But it's interesting too, with musical theater, you can't get too narrative. There are certain narrative songs that don't really work in musical theater because I, you know, helping kids find material, sometimes you're like, well, this is a good story song, but it doesn't really musically go anywhere. So like you were saying, Rod, there are certain songs that are great storytelling songs that are more of the traditional balladeer type. And then there are ones that are dramatic and lend themselves very well to theater. Do you find that they need to be looser and less strict lyrically in terms of storytelling to work as theater? Because that's, I mean, that is an element of Bohemian Rhapsody that, you know, it doesn't really travel from us from one place to another. Is that? I think you're totally right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. If it sticks too closely to specific lyrics through the whole thing, then it means that you really need to be listening to those lyrics. And if you're really going to listen to those lyrics, most of the time you don't want it to be too musically interesting because you want the lyrics to be the focal point rather than what it's musically doing. That's very true. Springsteen is a great example of a songwriter who understands that when he's got a narrative, when he's got a strong narrative that he wants the listener to follow, he will pare down the chord changes and the melody to the absolute minimum. You know, some of those great story songs on The Ghost of Tom Jode are like that. There's very little melody. You know, there might, the melody might just be four notes. And that's a very, very wise thing. It's just exactly what you said. It pushes your ear to that story. It makes you follow the story. I've got an example in my own catalog that really was kind of a, it was a mystery to me for a long time. When I first moved to Nashville, I had this song called Tiger Tom Dixon's Blues which is about my great uncle, who was a, a heavyweight boxer. It's a real narrative. You know, it's just his story. It's me telling his story, and it travels sort of through the beginning of his career and through the end of his career. It's not very tight lyrically, but you can follow the story along. And I remember I would go play these open mics in Nashville. I would play that song, and I would play these other songs that I had written, and that was the only one that would get any response. You can tell when you're playing in front of a crowd. You can see how people are responding, you know. And people would come up to me after I finished the set and say, yeah, that, you know, that song's really cool. That's really great. That's a, that's a neat song. That was the only one that would get complimented. For, you know, a year and a half, I just, it puzzled me. I thought, what is it? I mean, there's no melody in that song. It's basically an E note. I sing an E note through the entire song. There's almost no melody whatsoever. And there are only two chord changes. And it's just relentless. And it's long, too. But what I realized at a certain point, I realized, well, this song is true. And people are picking up on that. I'm giving people something to follow as opposed to a C-level version of a country pop song, which was what the other songs were. I mean, that's why I moved to Nashville to try to get a publishing deal. That was a revelation, really, that people would respond to something because there was truth at the center of it, even if it really had no melody or much musically going on. And specificity, right? Do you think that's part of it? Yes, absolutely. I hate to take the conversation back too much, but I wanted to clarify something that Rod said, and that was he mentioned Springsteen. Um, 
That's Bruce Springsteen, for those who don't know who he's talking about. <laughs> oh my God, shut up. Okay. I was actually, when you brought that up, Rod, I was already Googling him because Erica had mentioned Billy Joel and the missing piece between Bob Dylan and Billy Joel is definitely Springsteen. Like if, if you want to look at a probably direct line of influence on why they were writing those kind of story songs that Billy Joel was doing in the 70s, it's probably not straight from Dylan. It's through Springsteen. Well, has Springsteen actually been made into a Broadway musical? Oh, there's Springsteen on Broadway, which is him and his guitar telling the stories, doing exactly the thing that you do, Rod, the song that you were <laughs> describing. Like, that is half of Springsteen's catalog, and this Broadway adaptation is not like, ooh, Born to Run sounds like a fascinating story. Let's make it into a show. No, it's just sit down and tell the damn stories, you know, and sing the songs. And that's the most effective way. But there's a jukebox movie made out of it called Blinded by the Light, which gets us to this whole additional layer of storytelling songs, which is the visual element. And, you know, we got into it a little bit already with musical theater and that there is something visually happening on the stage. Well, it's things are being sung and acted, but really the advent of music videos and not people performing songs like Burt Sugarman's Midnight Express, but actual music videos. And you don't need to be as careful or as literal a storyteller when something is being played out in front of you with actors and things happening. It can be a slightly different story or it can be a looser interpretation of what's being said. I wonder if that marked a turning point in ballads or ballads in the larger sense of what we've been talking about, that they don't have to carry quite as much of the load in terms of telling a story. And as a result, are they less common or do they not work as hard in general as they used to? Wow, that's interesting. I'm sure there was a time, I mean, music videos aren't really, not really a thing anymore. I mean, people make them, but they're not how music is consumed anymore. And for a long time, you know, during the heyday of MTV, that was how music was consumed on television through music videos. That's how pop culture was consumed in terms of music. That's a really good question. It's a really good observation. I'm sure some of the video directors had an absolute blast taking songs that really didn't have much of a narrative and designing a video around it, you know, that told the story. I'm absolutely positive that that happened. I do th think of the cars. I, I was in one of them. The, the cars, <laughs> you might think, one of my favorite songs as a kid, as being a story song about a man who's tormenting a woman and, and is riding on a, it's a fly, and then he's a bar of soap, getting in Paulina Poroskova's face. So, <laughs> yes, these stories made out of... Things that are utterly not story songs. And it's one thing to be told that Stacy's mom has got it going on, and it's another to really be shown that <laughs> Stacy's mom has indeed it going on. Oh, she had it going on. It would yeah. have been really hard yeah. to imagine without the, the visuals. <laughs> I was thinking of, you're making me think of one of my favorite videos when I was growing up was The World I Know by Collective Soul. And that particular song is not at all a story song, right? But I remember that song because of the video, mostly, because in that video, I was at that age where I wanted everything to be very dramatic. I didn't realize that that's what I wanted, but evidently it was. The lyrics are just like, has our conscience shown? Has the sweet breeze blown? Has the kindness gone? Hope still lingers on it. I drink myself a newfound pity sitting alone in New York City, and I don't know why. The whole video is about this guy who's deciding he wants to commit suicide. The lyrics in the chorus are, so I walk up on high and I step to the edge to see my world below. And I laugh at myself while the tears roll down because it's the world I know. And 
it's not about suicide, I don't think, but all of a sudden that song to me became about this guy wanting to commit suicide. And then at the very end, like he sees some light and he's, you know, I think a bird like flies on him and all of a sudden he finds hope, which I just thought, oh, what a deep music video that was. (laughs) And now it's just so silly to think about how they were literally pulling at my heartstrings, like 13 year old me, you know? Literally, literally, literally pulling my heartstrings. As much as heartstrings literally are a thing. As much as they exist. That's right. That's narrative through probably director's eyes rather than the lyrics themselves ever lending them to to that story. That was just what I was saying. I bet I'm sure there were directors that just had an absolute blast just taking this kind of nebulous or unclear lyric that sounded great. But wasn't as profound as it, you know, right. sounded like it was, and <laughs> and just putting a story to it. I'm sure they had a blast doing that. Yeah, there's of course a continuum here between you know that you can use music as part of storytelling. Of course, we use it in every movie. You can have a ballet. Like everybody thinks the Nutcracker tells a story. Like no, it's just some music that was written to go to a story. I don't know what the order of operations was with writing the Nutcracker Suite, but clearly you don't get that story just from listening to the music. And I guess the other way is, you know, we haven't really talked about whether some short stories can be more like songs, that the typical story song, a lot of things you might argue whether they're story songs or not, it's because, like you were describing, Rod, the Queen song was, it's a glimpse, it's a snapshot. But of course, there are famous short stories, like short stories, way better than a novel for this, of course, that really do just provide a glimpse, a snapshot. A lot of your own short stories, you know, that parallel the songs were like, maybe something happens in it, but a lot of it is just like Secret Life of Walter Mitty is one I always think of just as where it's purely just like, what's going on in this guy's imagination? A character study of this guy. And that is that even a story? I guess <laughs> clearly they are. They're published in books of short stories, but it's not narrative. That's a great point. I mean, I think there are different ways to address it. I think it's still story because you're getting characters and you're receiving a situation. And there's just such a wide range of how it can be done where you fill in the story with your imagination, like a famous blue raincoat. You could actually argue whether that's a story song at all, uh, because nothing happens. If you just read the lyric, it's like a postcard. It's the narrator communicating to this one person in almost every single line. Nothing unravels. And yet there's stuff in there that gives you ammunition as a listener to sort of unravel a story for yourself, which is, I think, a kind of interesting slant on it. I included this one in the list just because it was one that was, again, listed on these articles of, like, here's a bunch of story songs. And it's one that I remembered. It's, like, one of my favorite Leonard Cohen songs. But I don't know that I'd actually really listen to the lyrics. And even going back and listening to a little bit of the video, like, I was trying to listen to a lyric video just in the, like, 10 minutes running up to this. And he sings it so slowly. And it's so bass. It so sweeps you up with its melody. I lose track. I don't know what he's talking about anymore. There's so many songs like that that it doesn't come through as a story because you're so swept up in, in this case, uh, lushly delivered melody, the flourishes, you get caught up in it as music and you're not listening to it as a story anymore. And you have to look at the lyrics. I agree. It's hypnotic. And there really isn't a narrative. And that might be part of why 
you tune out of the lyric a little bit. There isn't an, a story unfolding. It's a postcard. It's four in the morning, the end of December. I'm writing to you to see if you're better. New York is cold, I like, but I like where I'm living. There's music on Clinton Street all through the evening. There's not a story. There's nothing unfolding. I love that postcard. He's also using more poetic moves than prosaic moves as he puts his words down. And so that also makes it a little bit harder to, if you wanted to make the case for it being a story, I think you lose yourself in the music and in the words both. And so it's a little harder to keep yourself rooted. Yeah, I agree. When I listened to it, I had the same feeling. Like I had to really stare at the lyric as the song went by to stay focused on what was essentially not unfolding <laughs> to what the postcard was. You know, Leonard Cohen did cover the Pina Colada song and delivered it. <laughs> Do you like Pina Coladas? <laughs> <laughs> it was like 10 minutes long to get through. He has the worst version of Hallelujah, you know, even though he even though he wrote it. <laughs> He's great. That is an amazing song to unpack. It's really mysterious. But the rhyme scheme, if you ever just get curious about the rhyme scheme of that song, go unpack that and look at the rhyme scheme. It's, it's incredible how long he makes you wait for the rhyme. It keeps you so engaged. Because he keeps making you wait. And just when you think the rhyme is coming, it doesn't come. It's another two lines before the rhyme comes. It's just so great. That, it's yeah. masterful. Yeah. Erica, I feel like your pick of the Billy Joel's Italian restaurant, we only talked about for like two seconds. Did you have any more detailed thoughts on that before we wrap this up? I discovered it off of his double album of greatest hits when I was a kid. And it always kind of bothered me because the main story of that is Brenda and Eddie but we also have the possible story he could have told more about. And I'm not criticizing the song, but it like, isn't it interesting that he talks about being at this restaurant? He could have talked more about his interaction with the waiter, but it's really just the beginning and the very end. Then he talks about these people just talking about things are okay with me these days. Got a good job, right? So there's that part, which is very actually pretty quick. And then it goes immediately in the, like right after that, right into this really long detailed story about this couple who didn't make it. I've always thought it's strange and it, it still like fascinates me and I love this song, but I always wanted more from the other parts of the story. It just feels off balance. It's the more sophisticated version of I Thought of Jack and Diane by yeah. John Millicamp is one of the first things in this genre that always, even as a kid, bugged me. Sucking on the dog outside the taste of free. Like, <laughs> it just seems like a very cheesy way to tell a story. And I've grown to respect John Mellencamp a lot more, but I feel like this is basically the same kind of story, but with more detail and stuff actually happens. They get divorced and a little more developed. I always had the same response to Jack and Diane, too. I mean, it's, you know, in some ways, it's a masterful piece of pop rock. Unforgettable. I mean, you heard it once and it, you knew it was a hit. It's impossible to ignore. Yeah, that song always rubbed me strangely, too. It feels a little lazy lyrically. Maybe this is my own internal thing because I read an awful lot and because I'm working on other kinds of writing. Words have personality. Words have a face. And just like you, just exactly what you said, you know, sucking on a chili dog. That is not an appealing. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. <laughs> <It's> not. <laughs>
Mellencamp has written some great songs. See, I feel like it's really well done because it is does sound so unappealing. I mean, I think it's not romanticizing it at all. I guess I'm really just coming to the defense of John Mellencamp here. Maybe my reaction was just because being a nerd, both these songs are like about the prom queen and the football king and ooh, they're so interesting and I want to hear stories about them. And I was like, as a kid, I'm not interested in these characters. Screw you. But it's not. It's about, I think it's told from the perspective of the outsider and the nerd who's like, these people seem like they had it all, but clearly they didn't. I thought it was talking from the perspective of them older, that they're reflecting on how life used to be thrilling when they were sucking on their chili dogs. And now... But it's like long after the thrill of living is gone. You know, like the idea I think is this used to be the thing and there's a sadness to it because like those people peaked. I think that's to me, that's what both of these songs are about. And that's the line that works for me. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the line I keep yeah. wanting to hear. There's this kind of melancholy inherent in just saying that. It's interesting to me that y'all are talking about Billy Joel so much because I, I have a real enormous admiration for him. And yet I think of his songs, like even his rock and roll songs, and he can rock, you know, he had a great band and they rocked. They sounded great. Billy Joel to me sounds like he's doing a musical theater version of what he thinks rock and roll is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. When you brought up that there was a piece of theater built around Billy Joel's catalog, that makes perfect sense to me. Because I think of the really great, well, who I think of the really great songwriters like, you know, Leonard Cohen and the best of Springsteen, not all, certainly not all of it, but the best of Springsteen and Dylan and Paul Simon. I'm not sure I want to see that piece of theater. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. the songs are so fulfilling on their own. Springsteen's The River is a masterpiece of narrative songwriting and i'm not sure i want to see that piece of theater like that's finished <laughs> I'm, I'm just looking up the lyrics to glory days just because that's his exact version of jack and diane it is yeah and like is it a lot better i remember that's another one that i remember from the video and so it's like completely just a video driven story in my head <laughs> and i know that's not you know his peak period but it's probably more more to it than either of these I think it's marginal. <laughs> I think it wins by a hair. That's an odd song, isn't it? Of course, it was a huge hit, but when you read the lyric through it, it's a little odd, yeah. Well, the one thing I'll say, and I know we're getting close to the end here, but here's some proof that a lot of people don't listen to any lyrics, and this is just what you want to hear, Rod, right? Oh, yeah. where... <laughs> there was a Gene commercial, and it was like super patriotic. I forget what brand it was. But, you know, there's the American flags flying and people pulling on their blue jeans. And, of course, the lyric that starts playing, some folks are born made to wave the flag, ooh, the red, white, and blue. And so they're playing Fortunate Son, which is, like, the most unpatriotic, pessimistic, our country is, like, swirling down that shithole of a song. And at least the person in Madison Avenue who came up with this thought it was, like, the most brilliant thing. I was like, oh, yeah, what's that American flag song? It's like, man, could someone please fucking listen to this song? Because I'm going to go buy those jeans and move to Canada because this song is bringing me down. How many Republicans have used Born in the USA? <laughs> and Democrats, for that matter. You're right. They hear Born in the USA and boy, that's it. And both of those absolutely protest songs. Both of them are very dark protest songs. That's a really good point that people don't listen to the lyrics. They just pump their fists. And it, it, but it's how they consume. <laughs> it's how different people consume pop culture. It's interesting that both of those songs were huge hits and pinpoint 
a point in our culture, like a very specific point in our history. Both of those songs are important songs for their time. They're protest songs that were taken as pop songs. I just started thinking about Fortunate Son being used in that ad, and I just realized, because I was thinking, I can't picture John Fogarty allowing that. But then I remembered Saul Zantz owned all the publishing to the Credence catalog. That lawsuit went on for years and years and years. And that, so obviously that's how it got, that got put in the song. I don't think Fogarty would ever allow that. And Neil Young famously said he didn't want his songs to be used in commercials. And someone he said, wrote a song what, about what it. Neil yeah. Young's song would you put in a commercial? And the joke was, I want a bun with a cinnamon swirl. <laughs> a little cinnamon swirl. Hot fudge in the summertime. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up. Thanks so much, Rod. Thanks, Rod. Thank you, Rod. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. I mean, I actually forgot that we were recording. I felt like I was just having a conversation with friends. I love this stuff. So yeah, thank you for having that's me. That's the idea. Our pleasure. Take care. Song listeners. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.